Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 312. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Let's just state for the record now, we think everything is back to normal with, you know, I was saying last week, the, the sofa was a big girl, there's no getting away from it, and she has moved lock, stock and barrel over to Josh's new spanking fast new server. So we've left the old, or the other sites, Tears to Terrify, Protecting Project Pulp and the Crime City Central on the old server, we've moved the old, the old girl over there and everything now is hopefully back to normal. The feeds, because the feeds were a little bit kind of problematic on the Android side of things. Well, I certainly found that. I don't know if it was if that was the case with Apple's in a portal into into my world sort of thing, but definitely Android. You know, there was a problem there. So hopefully now we're all back to normal. You know, like I say, it is super fast. The girl is rocket fuel fast, man. Go over to Starship Sofa just to see how fast it loads. Yeah, that's the geek inside us. Wow, look at that. It loads faster. It loads 1.2 seconds faster. But yeah, Josh, what can I say? A big thank you. And I know he's got oodles of work on there, so you had to kind of drop things and get that sorted. So big up there, Josh. Tell you what's coming in today's show then. First up is looking back at genre history with Amy H. Sturgis. Then we have a Sofa Notes preview. Yes, I'm going to do these little series of just dropping little things in there. Just giving you a little glimpse into what will happen in Sofa Notes or over at Sofa Notes. Then we've got the main fiction, which is The New Guys Always Work Overtime by David Eric Nelson. Then I'm going to mention a little Kickstarter project that's been going around, or what's brought to my attention, one of our listeners. Thank you very much. So that is Starship Sofa, show 312. I hope you're going to enjoy it. Now, before we get into that, it's the first week of the month, and as you know, it is art. We always have a cover art, or we try, I try my best to get some art for the kind of the first of the month there. And look at this one, mind you. Oh, it is fantastic. It is by the artist called Nicholas Bouvier. Now, Nicholas, I've butchered that, I know, but that's as near as I'm going to get, Jory's going to get to pronouncing your name. I'll give you a little heads up about Nicholas. Sparth, Nicholas Bouvier, has been an active artist, director and concept designer in the gaming industry since 1996. Born in France, he now lives in Seattle, Washington, working for Microsoft. Having had the privilege of travelling extensively at the early years to such far places as the USA, Singapore, China, France and Europe, he was influenced greatly by various cultures and he's enjoyed observing people and making notes of all these tiny details of life that he found and was witnessing. The varied influences are largely responsible for his multi-creative passions, which range from space to buildings to robotics and beyond. And I'm not joking. Get a look. I'll put a link on the Nicholas's site there. Get a look at his work there, man. Oh, it's just science fiction. It's just fantastic, man. And Nicholas's Nick's promises to give us two more works. 
you know, I've got my eye on two more there, so I'll try and bag them off Nicholas as well. So I'll put a link on this side, go over there and have a look at Nicholas's work, man. This is stunning. I'll put this picture as well in the feed so you can kind of see this, what we've, we've got today as well. And this is entitled Hunchback Racer. And I put this on this, this picture on Facebook. I always put the kind of, if you, if you should follow us on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, just you get a little glimpse of what's coming in future shows. And I put this on. And just bang, 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 like, 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 oh, it's just cracking, oh, you know what I mean? It's just total science fiction, and that's what, that's what this girl's all about. Oh, well, that's it, girl, eh? Six foot three, Geordie bloke, and I mean the the, the program, yeah, well, the Starship's over. So, do pop over there and have a look at this, this the, the artwork, it's fantastic. So, first up then is our very own Amy H. Sturgis, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. This is the third of a three-part series remembering the 125th anniversary of the Jack the Ripper slayings by considering how science fiction has handled the Jack the Ripper question. In this final segment, I'd like to talk about the ways that science fiction creators have explained the inhumanity of the terrible crimes Jack the Ripper committed by suggesting that Jack the Ripper, well, wasn't human. Perhaps the most well-known work that proposes this theory is one that I mentioned just in passing in the first segment. That is Robert Bloch's episode, A Wolf in the Fold, from the original Star Trek. In this episode, Jack the Ripper is revealed to be a force that has been traveling the universe, both in corporeal and non-corporeal form, feeding off of the terror and fear of different populaces at different times. Eventually, the creature makes its way to the Enterprise itself and takes control of the computer. Kirk and company decide to starve it out. If it wants fear and terror, they're just not going to give it to it. And so they tranquilize themselves so that they're just not too worried about anything. And eventually, they corner the creature and beam it into space at maximum dispersion, spreading it into billions of harmless atoms forever floating in the depths of the black. Now, you'd think that would be the end of Jack the Ripper, but no, this is science fiction. The story is continued in DC Comics' Wolf on the Prowl and Wolf at the Door, and then Wildstorm's Star Trek The Next Generation comic, Embrace the Wolf. So that story had a long life. There's another work that reminds me somewhat of A Wolf in the Fold, although it is certainly different in other ways. But it, too, suggests that what really made Jack the Ripper Jack the Ripper is something that travels from body to body, inhabiting and controlling its host. Now, to talk about this, I'm going to have to dive into a massive subgenre of Jack the Ripper fiction, and that is Jack the Ripper meets Sherlock Holmes fiction. I have an embarrassingly large number of books dealing with Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper. But you all knew I was a geek girl anyway, right? But in a way, this mashup really makes sense. If you play the game, 
that many Holmes fans love to play. That is, if you treat Sherlock Holmes and Watson and Lestrade and Mrs. Hudson, etc., as real historical people, then of course Sherlock Holmes would have, at some point or another, been brought to bear on the Jack the Ripper issue. Holmes was, in fact, already practicing as a consulting detective. Holmes was there in London when that happened. Well, perhaps not exactly. Depending on how you date certain stories, he may have been away during part of that time on the moors for the Hound of the Baskervilles. But I digress. At some point, Holmes would have been brought onto the case or would have weighed in with his own theories. Now back to the book that reminds me of Robert Bloch's idea. It is John R. King's The Shadow of Reichenbach Falls from 2008. Reichenbach Falls refers to the famous confrontation between the great detective Sherlock Holmes and his nemesis, the evil Professor Moriarty. Interestingly enough, the novel suggests that Moriarty wasn't always evil. In fact, he had used his great mathematical genius to figure out the structure of London's underworld in order to collapse it. And the big prey that he followed was Jack the Ripper himself. Ultimately, he killed Jack the Ripper. But in the act of killing him, the evil in Jack the Ripper, the thing, left the Ripper and entered Moriarty. At that point, then, Moriarty becomes evil, and the vacuum created by the collapse of the underworld that he himself had made possible paved the way for him to become the master of criminal London. You probably see where this is going, because Moriarty dies at Reichenbach Falls, thanks to the great Sherlock Holmes. And that evil thing needs to find a new home. I'll let that remain open-ended, shall I? My very favorite story in this category is Jeffrey Landis's The Singular Habits of Wasps, which was first published in 1994 in Analog. It was nominated for the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award. So, see, you don't have to take my word for it when I tell you that it's great. And, in fact, that's about all I'm going to tell you, because it's a gift that the reader should unwrap on his or her own. I will just say that it was exactly what I was looking for. It has great Holmes and Watson, a bit of H.G. Wells, and a truly science fictional, and in my reading, unique, explanation for Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel murders. It's a terrific read. A very quick aside before we move on, if you're interested in Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper fiction and you're not looking for a science fictional explanation, I recommend Dust and Shadow, An Account of the Ripper Killings by Dr. John H. Watson by Lindsay Fay, by far my favorite of these works. Also, The Mycroft Memoranda by Ray Walsh, very, very good. The Last Sherlock Holmes Story by Michael Dibden, quite dark but excellent. And last, Edward B. Hanna's The Whitechapel Horrors. 
All right. The last incarnation of the Jack the Ripper wasn't human stories I'd like to talk about is the Jack the Ripper was a vampire subgenre. Now, we've already talked about Jack the Ripper and Doctor Who and Jack the Ripper and Star Trek. It's time to move on to another franchise, another popular universe, and that is Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Jack receives several mentions in the Buffyverse, but it's in the comic Tales of the Vampires that we really learn his story. We discover that Jack the Ripper was a London vampire who was active in 1888. The murders he committed drew the attention of Inspector James Whitcomb, who was himself secretly a vampire. He dusted Jack in order to keep the general population calm. And unaware of the existence of vampires, the general fear and terror created by his killings, you see, was affecting the rest of the vampire population. It's worth noting, too, that in the comic collection Origins, we discover that Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, you know, that infamous bad guy known as Caligula, was the same vampire as Jack the Ripper. I will end by pointing out that the Jack the Ripper as Vampire theme is alive and well. An example of this is the 2012 novel by Dean Turnbloom, Sherlock Holmes and the Whitechapel Vampire. Like other novels before it, this novel employs both historical figures, such as a police commissioner Sir Charles Warren and Inspector Aberline of Scotland Yard. With fictional characters such as Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And the main character, who is a close family friend of Sir Charles and also happens to be in love with Sir Charles's niece, Baron Antonio Barlucci. Barlucci also happens to be a vampire who has come to London to seek treatment, a cure really, for his vampirism. Needless to say, he doesn't find a cure before he is the cause. Of the Autumn of Terror. I hope you've enjoyed our three part tour of science fiction's reaction to and grappling with Jack the Ripper. I have only scratched the very surface of what is an immense body of work, as writers have brought time travel, alternate history, other literary genres and characters. And the idea of the alien and the monstrous to bear on the subject of the Whitechapel murders. If you're looking for some place to start in your reading, I recommend the brand new 2013 Tales of Jack the Ripper, edited by Ross E. Lockhart, which is a very satisfying collection. Others that I recommend that may be harder to find, as they're not all still in print, include. Jack the Ripper from 2004, edited by Martin Greenberg, Charles Waugh, and Frank McSherry. That's actually a later incarnation of a collection called Red Jack. And Ripper, with an exclamation point at the end, edited by Gardner Dazwaz and Susan Casper from 1988. As well as the 1975 collection Jack the Knife, edited by Michael Perry. And last but definitely not least, The Harlot Killer, 
which is a collection of fiction and nonfiction published in the first 70 years following the murders. That's edited by Alan Barnard and published in 1953. I'd like to end this by saying that we've given an awful lot of attention to Jack the Ripper, and I believe this is in the effort to wrap our collective brains around a mystery that remains unsolved. And horrors that are difficult to contemplate and understand. But I want to end not by putting emphasis on the criminal, but on his victims. And so I'd like to end this 125th anniversary retrospective by remembering those that scholars and investigators today believe were the victims, the innocent victims, of horrendous and deadly violence. Martha Tabram on the 7th of August, Marianne or Polly Nichols on the 31st of August, Annie Chapman on the 8th of September, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes on the 30th of September, and Mary Jane Kelly on the 9th of November, 1888. I look forward to joining you again soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you. <laughs> There you go. A fantastic three-part series, that. You know what I mean? Just, and it's funny, I was just, I dropped the aims and email and saying that Ripper Street has now started again. This is a BBC production. And it's, it's kind of in that area, you know, of, of kind of where Jack the Ripper was killing, doing all the killings and everything. But it's, it's what other crimes are going on in that. You know, it's not just focusing on Jack the Ripper. That kind of, that's, they've moved on and they're kind of just getting on with their daily lives and the crimes there. And that's great. But now, has anybody, and I'm going off topic here totally, but has anybody seen the series that just finished called Peaky Blinders? Oh, man. This was set in probably or just after the First World War. The kind of people come back from France, you know, and, and it's all set around Birmingham ganglands. Peaky Blinders, you know, they wear these kind of the old-fashioned caps and apparently the, the sword razor blades into the, into the peaks of them and this is like a gang's kind of fought on. And that series was just, what a production value by, you know, the BBC. What just classic. Hey, it was, honestly. They had Sam Neill. And you kind of think, oh, he just played the quintessential kind of nasty, well, I think he was an Irish copper, but just character, just driven all the way. Do you know what I mean? If you like character-driven stuff. And you had Killian Murphy in there as well, which was, you know, kind of lifted the kind of, status no no problem whatever but it was just a great show do you know what I mean and the fashion and everything like that just excellent what a if you get a chance to see that you know it was on BBC I had to catch it on the iPlayer because I missed it with my dad that was telling us about it so get a look for that and next year a big thank you to Amy sorry yeah, I'm wandering off the topic there big thank you to Amy I put a link on so you can go over there and check out Amy's work it's marvellous Amy thank you so much Right, what I want to do now then is just for a, a while, a little while, bear with me, is talk about sofa notes and what I've got planned for sofa notes. As you remember last week, I kind of gave up what sofa notes is going to be. It's going to be a private member, it's like a premium site, so we can kind of like support Starship Sofa, just keep it running well into the future. And that's the kind of the goal, you know, we make sure we kind of hitting off on the right foot and we just go well into the future. Do you know what I mean? I'm kind of fit and raring to go with it. But I just want to make sure 
you know, Starship Sova is. And, you know, and this is one of the best ways, I guess, to make sure that happens. So over the, the last few weeks, I've been getting in touch with a lot of the members who kind of donate now out of the goodness of the heart, you know what I mean? Just to make sure Starship Sova goes. And I've just been asking them, you know, what do you feel like? What, what are the things that would kind of be a benefit to you? And, you know, there's, there's lots of them to be quite, you know I mean? it's not just like one trick pony, but it is content. It is stories, you know, be that audio or be it kind of just digital. And that's kind of probably one of the, you know, the main things in the sofa notes is there will be stories, extra stories, more stories, you know, just getting submerged in science fiction stories. That's, I guess, why I started, you know, Starship Sofa in the first place there is just, the pleasure of escapism, you know, like finding a story and just getting totally lost in it. And if I can do that again, you know, kind of in some small way, you know, when I go to work, this is the kind of, this is the, I always base this model on myself. When I go to work, there is a look on my desk and I've got six video screens, computer screens there in front of us, 10 foot in front of them. There's another seven monitors and I'm almost kind of jacked into that place. You know what I mean? Eight hours. And then I come back and I just want to just escape from that environment. Do you know what I mean? Reservoir levels, kind of pressures, all this kind of nonsense. And I do that by, you know, Starship so far. I do that by reading the stories and just getting lost in it. And that's, you know, the fundamental thing I want to do is kind of keep on giving stories out there. And so in Sofa Notes, we're going to have audio and digital stories. And there'll be a vault there. So... In that vault, you know, say if you join two months down the lane, the lane, the line, there will be the same, you know, them stories what we kind of had the month before. They'll be still in there, this vault, you know, so they're never going to go away, but they're just there for private members and they'll be digital or audio dependent. Like I say, I've been in touch with a few, you know, people who donate to the Starship Sofa and, and ask them, you know, what is, you know, and like I say, just before there, content you know what I mean and that's my goal it's just to kind of fill it with great stories you know what I mean I've got my head is buzzing you know what I mean as soon as I wake up to when I go down put my head down on the pillow on the night time just thinking ideas for story you know who can I get yes all that and you know just as important just as much for the feedback what I got is new writers you know just getting someone who's you know a new writer just first story published get that into the vault there as well so it's just and the idea is, you know, like I say, when you're leaving work or, you know, at work, you can just grab a story, either in digital or audio, and just, you know, that's it, escapism, just get lost in that world and enjoy it. So when you log in, there will be a kind of separate page or a separate vault where basically everything will be in there. You know, it's Josh is kind of sorting that out there now. So and as soon as you, you join all of the Starship Sova stuff, you know, all that material we've got, It'll be in there anyways. And then from the 1st of January, we're going to keep on adding, you know, I'll be building, probably building up the vault before then. But officially from the 1st of January, I'll start to pile in the kind of work, you know what I mean? And one of the things I'm, I'm working on is to work with Nick and to get, you know, just give Nick some stories there. Nick Cam, who you know is a fantastic narrator. Bang, 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 give Nick some and just get some audio in there. Get some audio of everybody. But also, I quite like the idea, or I really like the idea of digital format, you know what I mean? Just being able to kind of grab it, put it on your Kindle, and you've got a story straight from the writer, do you know? And what better escapism is that, you know, than stories? 
and just having that vault. So you know when you sign up, there will be stuff there straight away to, to kind of come in and, and download. Like I say, all the Starship Sova stuff will be on there. Books one, two, three of stories and Tales to Terrify and the you know the Captain's Log as well. That'll be there. So you can just kind of download them straight away and have them. And you know the kind of, I mean, we had that kind of series going one, two, and three. You know the type of writers we've got in there, you know, from... China Mayville, Peter Watts, Michael Moorcock, Corey Doctorow. Do you know what I mean? There's some kind of cracking stories just in there. But that's just, like you say, that's just when you join up. That's the kind of thank you. I'll, they'll be waiting for you when you get there. You know, every bit of content. So you've even got like, and I'm going into the videos there now, but it's the, the, the kind of say the time travel videos, what Amy did, you know, with the Connie Willis and Ted Chang. That'll be in there. But I'll talk about the video side of it more more later on in, in future weeks about sofa notes. So that's the kind of the premise of it. There'll be stories in there, you know, totally that separate from Starship Sova. And honestly, don't get us wrong, it's certainly not going to belittle Starship Sova. I kind of put that, you know, where I'm going to kind of concentrate. They're all for me, kind of wrapped up in the same one. And if you don't want to come over and join, you know, don't get us wrong, six quid a month, it's a, it's a fair chunk. Do you know what I mean? But that's what I kind of put my heart and soul in it and make it worth it for everyone, do you know what I mean, who believes in us and who kind of, you know, signs up for it. I mean, I don't want to go too much into what I've got there now, but, you know, I, I mentioned Jason Samford's give us some stories there. And it's, the stories he's give us is, the beginning, number one, I can't remember if he said number one voted by Interzone listeners, but I've got three stories there by Jason and some kind of chat books which will be given away free as well. Do you know, I'm, I'm working with Michael Moorcock to get, because it was Mike Moorcock that kind of kicked off the whole, you know, way back Oral Delights, show number one, London Burn, Bone Burn. If I can get a story by Mike Moorcock to, to be in there as well, that would just be, you know what I mean? So that's, I'm kind of, you know, digging away there, drilling into his email, keep on, you know, pestering him. So that is, hopefully, well not hopefully, that is what's going to happen with, Sofa notes. There will be a vault there, a special kind of page where you can go and you can download the content stories in audio or digital format. And what's just, you know, a nice idea as well, and because I get this quite often, you know, is I get listeners emailing in, Tony, have you heard about this story? Have you heard? Now, if we can get that and put them stories in there as well, you know, if people who are members of the Sofa notes can say, check this story out what do you think you know i'm sure the writers would let we kind of put it you know give it out to our kind of private members there and i'm that is just you know what better way of word of mouth to get kind of you know writers or people interested in writers work there so if you you know if you want to be a member and you do know of certain stories that are kind of crucial in your life or were brilliant let us know we'll try and get them into the vault that'll be fantastic so that is you know, a little kind of introduction to what the actual story content will be. It'll always be there. It'll be in this vault. And I'm just going to keep on hopefully piling that kind of content up. Do you know what I mean? The, the goal is 400 gigs. That's my kind of, that's what I want of content. Do you know what I mean? Video, interviews, stories. That's the goal. Josh, you better get that side built ready for that kind of size. <laughs> And 
like I say, I'm going to keep mentioning sofa notes, you know what I mean? I keep dropping them things in as well there. So please, you know, do think about, you know, supporting it when it comes off. Enrollment I'm trying for is, you know, round about the December time for kickoff in January 2014. So we are getting to the main fiction and it is The New Guys Always Work Overtime by David Eric Nelson. I'll give you a little by you and like I say, Adam's put all the notes, the show notes there. We're leaving them on there now, so you can go over to the site and kind of just check out the full show notes as well. So that's you know, Adam, thank you so much for that. David Eric Nelson is a fiction author, freelance writer, and editor. Mr. Nelson writes occasional columns for several publications, including the Ann Arbor Chronicles, in the In It for the Money column. Now I'm sure Fred Heimbaugh, that's Fred's land of the living round there, somewhere around there. In addition to writing and editing various obscure <laughs> endeavours, he has edited more than half a dozen educational anthologies such as Perspectives on Modern World History, Chernobyl and Teens and Sex, his geeky craft book, Snip, Burn, Solder, Shred, Seriously Geek Stuff to Make with Your Kids, is now available in the fine real and virtual bookstores. Learn basic soldering, sewing, carpentry, wood burning and screen printing while making x-ray drums, guitar effects, steamships, boomerangs, kites, games, a sock squid and more. His notable stories include Bay, You Were Neither Hot Nor Cold But Look Warm and So I Spit You Out, co-written with his lovely wife and his novella took our teacher's clockies to copulate. His work has been published in Asimov Science Fiction, praised in Locus Magazine, honoured mentions in several volumes of the year's best fantasy and horror and the year's best science fiction, recommended for a Nebula Award and anthologised in the best of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlist. Wristlet! So there you go. I'll put a link on too. Like I see, Adam's put a link on there so we can go over to David Eric Nelson's site. David, thank you so much for this story. It is narrated by our very own Jim Phillips. Jim, who is the audio sound producer for Crime City Central on our District of Wonders. Jim, thank you so much. So, Starship Sova is very proud to present The New Guys Always Work Overtime by David Eric Nelson. Great bloody shites. One of Monday's new guys muttered as he pushed through the curtain covering the portal. It's brighter than the virgin's gleaming arsehole in here. This was reassuring. Their English was modern enough that they wouldn't have trouble following orientation. And I needed the reassurance, because Monday's new guys looked pretty scruffy in their caps, vests, and button-up trousers. Their hands were especially bad, each fingernail tipped with a black little cement of grime. We were going to have to have the soap talk at the big tub sinks before even trying to hustle them into their disposable paper coveralls, booties, and little white caps. It was possible we'd need to talk some of the older guys into wearing the white latex gloves. I don't know why, but the gloves tended to freak out guys from before, like, 1920. This was stuff I should have been explaining to Deke, but it was Deke's first day, and he seemed sort of freaked out himself. There are a million little details to watch out for. But the takeaway is this. We can't have ancient grit and crap floating around in the production room. If any particles wind up between the glass and the LCD, then those tablets can't go to market, and my team gets docked points, which Sharon's team will pick up over in Quality Assurance. She'd bet me pizza and bowling that they'd come out ahead this month. I had no beef with buying Sharon beers and frames, but that would make her third month running, and she was getting cocky about it. I drew a broad, natural smile across my face. Hey, fellas, I called out, clapping my hands a few times. No one snapped to attention, 
but everyone quieted down and forced themselves to focus my way. Welcome to Just-In-Time Fabrication and Fulfillment. I'm Taylor, and I'm with Human Resources. This, I pointed to Deke, who was behind the new guys, standing next to the curtain they'd just passed through as they emerged from the portal, which still cracked and popped with the heat of their arrival. Is Deke. He's new to HR, and basically just shadowing me. This appeared to mean nothing to any of them, including Deke, who was basically as wonderstruck as the new guys. Anyway, my job is to give you a quick orientation, and then get you over to the production floor so you can start working. I don't know what you were told by the recruiter on your side, but just to clarify, you'll be working a 12-hour shift today. That's eight hours of regular pay at the federal minimum wage of $7.25, and another four hours of overtime, which is time and a half. And they mostly seemed wall-eyed, either by being in the future, or because they weren't great at math, but we're used to getting screwed. Time and a half is $10.87. That's in current dollars. The total for the day will be like 100 bucks. Your wages are calculated in current dollars, but the actual payout you get will be in whatever makes sense where you're from, gold or silver or whatever. There's choices, but you make those later with Ann, who's the head of HR. Oh, and you're expected to pay taxes when you get back, whatever the law is, whenever that is. Any questions? A guy near the front cleared his throat. His face was narrow and ratty. He wasn't old, but every crease on his face stood out, lined with that matte black coal dust, or whatever, that was caked under their nails. He worked his jaw briefly, making his scraggly whiskers roll, before speaking in a nasal Irish whine that was about a full step higher pitched than I'd expected. Is it true, he began, that the president's still a nig... He brought himself up short, but the word he said, though probably respectful to his ears, was still only about halfway between Negro and the N-word that would get me written up if I said it out loud in the workplace. Yep, his name's Barack Obama. He's the 44th President of the United States. He's also a lawyer and a noted athlete. His father was black African, his mother white Kansan, and he has 13 wives. Shocked exclamations, albeit under the breath kind, ruffled through the ranks of the new guys. Just kidding, I said, and they settled. Six wives, two husbands. A single, quiet but clear, merciful heaven, popped up out of the crowd and floated away on the air-conditioned breeze of the orientation room. Apart from that, everyone seemed tired of marveling at the future. They wanted the clock to start so they could get paid and go home. Irish whiskers squinted at me, clearly suspecting I was full of crap. The man who gathered us said there's a dinner in the deal. That true? Yep, I beamed. At noon... They call it lunch. I made big, obnoxious air quotes. And it's held in the lunchroom. Totally gratis and all you can eat. Gratis meaning free, not discounted from our wages. Free as the wind blows, free as the grass grows, I assured him. There's beer with it, he asked, still reserving judgment. Sorry, Irish. Juice, coffee, tea, and pop. But O should have our hides if we dispensed beer in a factory cafeteria. An old-timer near the back gasped. Who's this Osha? Sixty-six-foot-tall Chinese dude, I replied without missing a beat. Took over California and Washington in 1952 and demands we pay fealty in human skins. Prince Obama got all that settled last year. Finally. I rolled my eyes with theatrical sarcasm. Thanks, Obama. This was met with bewildered and breathless silence. Some future, Irish whiskers muttered then hocked back and spit a wad of bloody phlegm onto the gray industrial carpet. Yep, I chirped, 
turning on my heel. Anywho, gents, time's a-wasting. No one starts getting paid till you all clock in. Let's scurry on down to the production floor and do some hand-washing and suiting up. Once we'd cajoled the new guys into scrubbing up and putting on the crinkly paper clean suits, Deke and I were basically free until their first mid-morning break, so I walked him down to our break room. He didn't say a thing in the hall, but his eyes rolled around like he was afraid of getting picked off by a sniper. I knew the feeling, from back when I'd started this nine months earlier, and just let him ride it out. He was the first guy I'd trained, but if my own behavior was at all indicative, then the Kubler-Ross-like stages of transtemporal adjustment were something like freeze when you glimpse the portal, get really paranoid in the hallways, break down in the break room. Deke waited for the break room door to click closed. Okay he said carefully. The posting for this job was really, really misleadingly vague. No, it wasn't, I said, staring at the muffins in the vending machine, like as though I was considering buying one. Yes, he was getting shrill. Yes, yes, it was. There, those... His breathing was ragged, quick and shallow. Cowboys from a time machine, he finally spat out. Dude, I turned back and looked him in the eyes. His pupils were tight little points. Dude, I said quietly, stepping up to put a hand on his shoulder, just as Anne had done for me nine months ago. It's okay, but listen, you're hyperventilating. You need to push all the air out of your lungs and hold it out for as long as you can. If you keep breathing this way, then you're going to feel all prickly and numb and lose control of your arms and probably pass out. This was clearly the wrong thing to say. Deke's eyes rolled desperately. Which is totally normal, I said firmly. You aren't sick from being near the portal. You're in no danger. You are hyperventilating like a totally normal guy who's gotten a totally normal surprise that he finds a little uncool. Breathe like me, Deke. Push your breath out. I did as I'd said, then croaked. Now hold it out until you can't stand it. We stood together, holding our breath. Deke coughed a little, then started to gulp in a fresh breath. Don't. Don't gulp. Sip a little air, then push it out and repeat. We'll do four, and then you'll feel cool. This job listing was misleading, he said calmly. This is the kind of thing that they should have to, like, disclose. It's nothing, I said. I mean, it's a trade secret or whatever, but seriously. If you'd pulled up this morning and found the parking lot filled with horses and buggies with the orange triangle on the fender, would it be any different? If these guys were all Amish? No. No one would put that in the job listing. Your co-workers are a little weird, is all. Everyone has weird co-workers. But not cowboys. These aren't cowboys either, I said. These are coal miners. Why? Because they mine coal. I smiled, then softly slugged him on the shoulder. Deke reluctantly smiled back. People smile when you smile, so you should always smile when you need to ease someone into seeing things your way. Basic HR stuff. Stuff I'd teach Deke later. Then Deke frowned. No, though, seriously. Why these guys? Because this is Tennessee, I said. And the light at the other end of that tunnel is some other time in this same spot in Tennessee. I knew this wasn't strictly true, unless this little patch of Tennessee once boasted a thriving population of mustachioed meatpackers with Chicago accents. But it's what Ann had told me, and it's what I was supposed to say. There just isn't that much past here. We get farmers and coal miners and settlers and Indians and whatever. The work isn't that hard. Stuffing circuit boards, cleaning glass with hexane, basic soldering, packaging to ship, 
Motivated guys like this pick it right up. And the dough's great. To them, it's astronomical. If they screw up, they don't get to come back. At least that's what Ann says. So they're good, and they're cheap, and they're American. Tablet computers made in America by 100% guaranteed Americans. Or, at least, basically. Ann says the whole thing, the tax abatements and stuff that fund it, are still sort of experimental with the U.S. Department of Commerce. But, I can see that all of this was basically washing over Deke. Too much information. But whatevs. Why do you fuck with them like that? Deke asked. Why did you tweak them about the president? I didn't know, so I faked a smile and wigged my eyebrows like I had a plan. Why not? On Tuesday, it was another batch of coal miners, and Irish Whiskers was back, frisky as hell, clean-shaven, and just beaming. If his sunny attitude hadn't clued me in, the fact that he wasn't sporting grime-highlighted crow's feet, that he had no crow's feet to hold the grime, should have. By the time I was to the Any Questions part of the spiel, Irish Whiskers was just about bouncing on the balls of his feet he was so jazzed. What are you gals wear? he asked. That slight lilt was still there, but seemed less gunked up by years of wood smoke and coal dust and whatever. At the cotillions and to the seashore and such, what passes for gowns and bathing costumes? I couldn't help but smile. Basically nothing, I guess, is what you're getting at. I mean, comparatively. The other new guy smirked. You've got cartivistas, or some such of this? He asked eagerly, coping basically the world's worst stage whisper, eyebrows working like a burlesque barker's. I laughed. Sure thing, Irish. There's some copies of Cosmo and Sports Illustrated and Vibe kicking around the break room. I'll bring them to lunch. Appreciative nods from the other new guys. And men can fly now, he continued. Yeah, in big airplanes, big, um, conveyances. Maybe twice as long as a boxcar, full of people, with big wings. The boxcar has wings, not the people. Irish's eyes grew wide as he scanned his fellow travelers. See, see, I told you, marvels, marvels of the future. He turned back to me. What's the year? Who's the president? He asked. Of the company? The CEO? I asked. I wanted to say Martin something, or maybe Martin. I think he was Dutch. Irish Whiskers scrunched his face in annoyance. No, who gives a half-shite on that? Who's the president of these United States of America? Barack Obama still, I answered, amused. This time his eyes lit up with wonder. An Irishman, he marveled. And several other new guys grunted their approval, heads nodding. An Irish president of the United States. Deke burst out with a snorting laugh, like a kid in the back of class after a pretty girl farts. No. I couldn't help but laugh, too. He's African-American. Kennedy was our... But I didn't get a chance to finish, because little whiskerless Irish whiskers had already decked me on the mouth, his face slack and lifeless save for burning red embers of embarrassment high on each cheek. He swung again and again, smashing me in the eye and the cheek, boxing my ear, catching me a glancing blow to the neck, and only stopping when he'd cracked his knuckles on my hard forehead and been pulled off me by an old bald guy and a fat man with immense, uneven sideburns. I was sitting in the break room with a plastic-wrapped organic frozen burrito pressed to my face when Deke came in. I'm filing a thing with HR, I told Deke as he rummaged in the refrigerator. A grievance. I'm grieved. If little Irish dudes are going to wig out and sock a dude over antebellum issues, there should be a security guard or something. Combat pay. Deke handed me the coke for my lunch. 
That would not happen if we were teleporting modern guys in from western China or whatever, instead of importing slaving hillbillies. Deke walked over to the silent soda machine and exchanged a dollar for a room-temperature mellow yellow. I took half of an online intro to commerce course. There was a sidebar about that in the online textbook thing. There were teleporters, I guess. They didn't work right. Something like seven in every thousand dudes who went through came out inside out, and there was just no doing crap about it. They could get by paying a Chinese dude like $100 for $300 of work, but the insurance was insane. The business model faltered. Why don't the time portals do the same thing? I asked, cracking my coke. Deke shrugged. The sidebar didn't say, and then my laptop crashed and I lost my login info and dropped the course. Didn't you study any of this supply chain business stuff in college? No, I studied German language and literature. It hurt to talk. Deke stitched his eyebrows. Then how'd you end up here? By not having a plan beyond, hey, I kind of dig German language and literature. Deke smiled and shook his head. You're okay, Taylor. I worked at a Walmart before, and all the management people there were total dicks. Anyway, the other coal miner guys were pretty freaked out by that fight. I guess that Irish guy's been doing this a lot in the last month for a bunch of different companies, and he'd always been really cool, almost sort of a tourist, upbeat and everything. That's nuts right there, I replied, my big rubbery lips banging against each other and making me wince. I'd never seen him before yesterday, and those guys are confused, because there isn't any other company with portals. Deke shrugged. You should ask the Asian girls, then. What Asian girls? The bald guy that peeled Irish guy off you said that the last time he came through with Punchy McIrish, the orientation was with celestial girls in their underlinens, and Irish had wood the whole day. Deke snorted a laugh. Anyway, they all yelled at him and made him go back through the curtain to the portal. So that's that, I guess. Deke drank some mellow yellow and pulled a comically ugly face. Ugh, he said. This is, like, piss warm. The machine is broken. Can't you hear the cooler not running in it? The smile hurt, but I couldn't keep it down. Deke was a good guy. And the can's warm, isn't it? Well, yeah, I just figured it would seem less warm than it is. This, he pulled a face, shaking his head like a dog with a nose full of ants, and took another sip. This is terrible. Wednesday was coal miners again, but no Irish whiskers, which was good, because my cheek still hurt like hell, and I was beginning to suspect he'd fractured the bone. I hadn't bothered filing out the injury report or a complaint or anything. I didn't want to see him again and have to admit to myself that I didn't have it in me to confront a guy who straight up smashed me in the face. Thursday was gunsmiths and tinsmiths and coopers, all in frock coats and cocky hats. They were sort of thee and thou-y, but honestly, they did incredible work on the tablet cases. It was phenomenal. Four of them took their pay in oats. Do you know what $100 in oats adjusted for 300 years of inflation looks like? I had to send Deke to Sam's Club with Ann's corporate card. It took the Smiths 20 minutes to get it all through the portal, handing sacks shoulder to shoulder like you'd imagine the crews at the pyramids passing bricks and mortar. They sang this song together to keep time, this crazy song about porno pirates doing crazy sex on each other and with dogs and corpses and statues and stuff. I would have totally recorded it and YouTubed it, but I'd signed a non-disclosure agreement when I was hired. On Friday I was running a little late, because I'd gone to karaoke with Sharon and Deke the night before and me and Sharon had stayed out late not making the love connection. Point being, I was already launching into my spiel when I caught a load of that day's new guys, and the words turned to ash in my mouth. Yeah, Deke said. It's 
It's weird that they're so young. And what's up with those haircuts? These new guys were a dozen or so scrawny, pale boys with ancient faces and sandy crew cuts. They were mostly in rough-looking baggy suits, except for the one girl, dark fuzz of hair on her head, dark eyes, who was in a sort of ratty frock. All of them wore clunky, cracked, clog-like boots as formless as lumps of tar. They weren't in the striped pajamas with the yellow stars or colored triangles sewn to them, but their hollow eyes said it all. They were the sort of eyes you saw in black and white on the History Channel, staring past barbed wire and railroad tracks. They stared at me. I stared back. Which Arbitzschlager are you from? I asked in German. I only knew how to say work camps from watching Schindler's List on what was likely the most ill-conceived date night of my life back in college. My head wasn't straight then. Live and learn, I guess. They're from Monowitz-Bona, the dark girl said in English, nodding at the pale boys. But I'm from auschwitz Birkenau. Okay. The word fell out of my mouth like a pebble. Okay, I guess. Then I switched back to German. Yes, I will do the orientation in German. Welcome all to... Nine, she snapped, and my mouth clicked shut like she'd pulled a string. She continued in English. I am here only because I am useful to translate. Polish, English, German, Italian, I speak these all. Maybe Spanish, also Yiddish. You speak English, you permit me to translate. So I started my spiel in English, but didn't bother to sell it. I just said the words like I was a kid reading lines for a part he had no interest in landing. After about the first half sentence, she started talking to the boys. Her words were German-ish. They weren't German. I guess that was Yiddish, but I don't know. I'd never heard it before, and haven't heard it since. She was much younger than I'd thought at first. A teenager. Something about her crew cut made her look not just older, but also... Ancient? I don't know. She looked like she ought to be carved in limestone, standing a hundred feet tall, guarding the door of a Babylonian god's tomb not standing in our orientation room in a threadbare frock and weird clod stompers. She was beautiful. I know how screwed up that sounds, but it's true, and I'm being honest here. She was the most beautiful gal I'll ever see. Any questions? I finally asked. She eyed Deke, and then, in German, said she had one last question, a request. Then she asked. I was afraid I'd heard her right, so I repeated the last word she said. She confirmed it, nodding her head. Yeah, gift. I was still sort of working through that, and didn't realize how long I'd been quiet, watching her. The skinny boys started to look at each other nervously. Finally, Deke clapped his hands and said, Okay, his voice just as perfectly, artificially chipper as mine always was. Let's scurry on down to the production floor and do some hand-washing and suiting up. He ushered them out into the hall, and I fell into step next to him. She wants a gift? Deke asked as we trooped down to the row of sinks and racks of paper coveralls outside the production room. Yeah, I said numbly. I didn't bother to explain that Gift is German for poison. Instead of going to the break room with Deke, I headed up to see Anne. The human resource offices were just a pair of tiny windowless rooms tucked along the edge of the telemarketing bullpen, a big open floor of cubicles occupied by khaki pants and headset folks. No one looked up as I walked through. Anne was a monumental lady. Big hands, big neck, big thighs. She easily would have had a head on me if she'd been standing, and I'm not that short. Like monumental people everywhere, she wasn't a sit-and-listen type. Her personality took up space to match her body. But Anne let me talk without interruption that morning, 
which quickly got creepy. I started tripping over myself, trying to slow down what I was saying, but nonetheless hearing my voice go faster and louder and higher pitched. Mercifully, Anne cut me off. Taylor, she said kindly, you're confused. There weren't any concentration camps in Tennessee. Anne! I hushed myself, but I knew the telemarketers had heard me. Anne, I'm not saying they're from concentration camp Memphis. I'm saying they're from Auschwitz. Fucking Auschwitz, Anne. I'm saying they're arbitrieren to macht free in our production room right now. Anne bit her lip. I appreciate that you're upset, she said carefully. But you need to appreciate that what you're saying is impossible. They're building tablet computers on the ground floor. Because it's just not how the portal works. You don't know how it works. Now I was shouting, and the telemarketers were listening. And I was probably really complicating some sales calls. Anne took a deep breath. That's not germane. Until eight this morning, those workers, whoever they are and whenever they're from, were skeletons in graves somewhere. They still are. Everyone else you orientated this week has been dead for a century or two. This isn't really any different. This is different. They aren't going to die of black lung or pneumonia or falling rocks or old age. Plenty of them died of pneumonia, Anne said gently, her eyes too bright, but no tears spilling over. We could keep them. I tried, hopeless. They aren't stray kittens, Taylor, and I don't know how wise it is to pull them out of their time stream and plunk them in ours. That's nuts, I said. Worrying about space-time continuums is nuts. We sent 700 pounds of goddamn oats to the early Republic yesterday. Anne sniffed once, hard. Her face was bright red, but her words were slow and cold. You're right, Taylor. I don't know how this really works. I don't know why sending gold nuggets to 1877 is fine, but letting anyone stay past a 12-hour shift isn't. I don't know. She swiveled in her Aeron chair and pulled open a file drawer, from which she extracted a glossy mock-up of her promotional fact sheet. Here's everything I know about the process. She held it out to me, but I didn't bother to take it. There weren't even a hundred words on it just marketing bullet points about peak cost efficiency and American-made in America and glossy pics of our production floor in the orientation room. You can't talk about what's on this, please. The press release is embargoed until Q3, when we'll begin offering exclusive production and fulfillment services to strategic partners. The orientation room on the press release had been photoshopped. There was no curtain next to the monitoring panel in that photo and the portal it showed was a lame, watery blue hole in the wall, like the graphics from a cheap video game. The real portal was just a hole coughing heat that warped the air, like a midsummer barbecue pit. It doesn't sound like much to describe it, but seeing it, or at least as much as I'd glimpsed past the curtain, was different. Past the curtain was an impossibly long hall going nowhere, with something glimmering deep and far back, almost too far away to be even a pinprick a bright, steadfast point like a distant planet in an otherwise starless sky. How can you do this if you don't know how it works, if you don't know the consequences? Do you know how electricity works? Anne asked, seemingly out of the blue, as she tucked the press release back into her drawer. Of course I do, I shot back. Then explain it to me. How does it work? How dangerous is it? Who gets hurt? What are the consequences? Anne did me the courtesy of not making me stumble around like an asshole. She was right. 
Beyond a vague recollection of a diagram showing a turbine with cartoon lightning bolts around it and something called the right-hand rule, I had no real clue how electricity works. We're in Tennessee, she said evenly, sniffling back the remaining tears. Even today, our electricity comes from good old coal. The smoke from those plants kills something like 10,000 asthmatics every year. You're upset about those 20 workers down in production because you have a good heart. But before you think it's too good a heart, tell me how many times you've gotten upset about those 10,000 Americans that are alive right now and will be dead next year. Those workers in production are already dead, Taylor. They're just getting a 12-hour reprieve from the grave. Resurrection isn't our business. Yeah, I spat. Our business is shipping tablet computers in time for back to school. Yes, she said calmly. That's our business. She broke eye contact and began sorting some papers on her desk, then turned to her laptop. I'm really glad you brought this concern to my attention. I'll be sure to pass it to corporate as soon as possible. I stopped in the break room to get my jacket and car keys, and Deke was sitting with a mellow yellow. Dude, I googled that Monowitz thing, she said. I didn't catch the other part because of her accent. Those kids are from a concentration camp. I know, Deke. Deke frowned. Why the hell didn't you say anything? I went to go talk to Anne in HR. Why didn't you say anything in the hall? Why didn't you say anything to me? I got them scrubbed up and suited. I put them to work. That's... I'm not cool with that. I gotta go to Walgreens, I told him. To get the translator check her gift. Yeah, make sure they get two morning breaks and hand out snacks. I took all of the cash out of my wallet, stuff from the vending machine, and damn it, play some music in the production room. What kind? I don't know. Swing. Swing music. Glenn Miller and Count Basie. Download a bunch of swing and play it as loud as they want, but... And I hated myself for saying it, but I couldn't stop myself. But not too loud. Don't... Don't screw up our numbers for today. We still have to get units done, and they still got to pass QA. I wandered the aisle at Walgreens, with no real idea what I could buy the Polish girl for poison. I stopped in the cleaning aisle, because basically everything there was poison. But I had trouble stomaching the idea of that girl chugging Drano or Pinesol, or whatever off-brand equivalent Walgreens had. Also, all of that would be pretty hard to smuggle back through the portal and into a prison camp. Probably talking to Anne had been a mistake. Probably going to Walgreens instead of a hardware store had been a mistake, too. I looked at my watch. If I wasn't back by noon, there'd be more questions. I looked at the bulletproof glass cordoning off the pharmacist. I didn't really have a plan. Just knew that there was plenty of fentanyl or oxy or whatever back there. Dumbasses accidentally killed themselves with that crap every day. And then I went to the plain old painkiller aisle and got the biggest bottle of off-brand Tylenol they had. The cheap pills with no coating kind that go down easy and dissolve in your stomach fast. Late that afternoon, the arsenic alarm went off. They did chip fabrication in another part of our building, and when the arsenic alarm went off, you didn't monkey around looking for your jacket or tying your shoes or hitting Control-S. You trotted out the nearest exit quickly and calmly. Deke and I hustled the new guys out the emergency door. The production room was windowless, and they clearly hadn't fathomed what the glowing exit meant. Outside, it was cloudless and warm, late afternoon in an early Tennessee spring. They gawked at the open patch of lawn, the blacktop parking lot glimmering with heat, the narrow, steep-banked drainage ditch, and the dense little scrub woods beyond it. No wire, no fences, no guard towers. Why bother? The past must be pretty craptacular, 
because the few new guys who ever saw the world outside our facility were totally gobsmacked. On the few occasions we'd ended up out here, no one had ever tried to run off. Dee handed out cigarettes to anyone who wanted them, which was everyone. He crumpled the empty pack and shoved it in his pocket, then went around giving everyone a light. One of the boys crouched down and stroked the shaggy, overgrown grass like it was a big green pelt. Then the all-clear bell rang, because it was a false alarm. It always was. An arsenic release would have been a pretty major screw-up. We shuffled our feet and took our time shooing everyone back in, so they could finish their smokes. When we did the count at the end of the day, before clocking the new guys out, the Polish girl was gone. After our shift, Deke and I sat in the break room with room-temperature sodas from the broken machine, even though we were clocked out. We could have gone anywhere, but we didn't. I can't speak for Deke, but I was too exhausted to move. Not exhausted like from hard labor. It dawned on me that I had no real idea what hard labor even was. I guess I was tired from thinking too hard, from doing the weird calculus on time travel, from figuring how responsible I was for those boys going to the gas or whatever, and that Polish girl not, and what Anne was going to do with our conversation. We were quiet for a long time. I sipped my warm Pepsi, even though it tasted like flat, malted battery acid. I pulled that alarm. Deke said flatly. Okay, I said. I thought, Deke deflated, I thought more of them would make a break for it. I sipped my Pepsi again. That's just not how people are, Deke. I fished the family-sized bottle of off-brand Tylenol from my jacket pocket and rolled it between my palms. I hadn't the guts to give it to her. It's a shitty, shitty way to go. It does something to your liver, something that can't be fixed. You slowly fill with toxins and your organs fail. As a rule, when you bung up your liver on purpose, you get put at the end of the organ transplant line. That's a long line to begin with. If someone gets you to ER right away, the docs can pump your stomach and hit you with activated charcoal and some sort of antitoxin before your liver is toasted. But if they don't, you die over the course of days, filling up with the everyday poisons your body produces under standard operating conditions. It hurts. A lot and they can't really do much about it except for juicing you with morphine for the pain and benzodiazepines for the fear until your heart finally stops. My older brother killed himself with Tylenol his freshman year in college. At the beginning of Thanksgiving break, during his first semester as a Tar Heel, Ben drove his roomie to the airport for an early flight to Connecticut then went back to their dorm room and took the whole bottle. He washed it down with Gatorade, crawled into bed, and no one found him until the next morning when the RAs went through to make sure everyone cleaned out their mini-fridges. It took him two days to die in the hospital. His skin and eyes were yellow, like one giant bruise. For the last of it, he just shook and groaned, like a dog having a seizure. I sat with him the whole time, holding his hand, wondering why he'd done it. I was a high school senior. By the middle of my second year at Dartmouth, it dawned on me that I had no idea why I'd bothered to work so hard to get into college. I had no friends, no roommate even couldn't sleep, and couldn't picture the future I was working my ass off to get to. One morning I realized that I finally understood where Ben had been coming from, and that I hadn't really bought the economy-sized Tylenol sitting on my dresser to be frugal. So I dropped out. Maybe Tylenol's better than being a slave translator in a German chemical plant and then getting gassed. I doubt it, but I'm not a slave. Anyway, it didn't matter. The girl had solved her own problem even after being starved real thin in a hell of mud and chemicals for God knows how many months. That was better than I could manage, and I'd never missed a meal in my life. Deke, I said carefully, 
You know that they caught you, right? The production area and orientation room in the halls. They're all full of security cameras. This is the shittiest possible job, Deke groaned, laying his head down on his folded arms. I don't know, I lied. I've had shittier jobs. Until that day it had been true. At least we're in HR. It's sort of almost management. I mean, we've got matching 401ks and dental and whatever. Who else does this? Deke's voice was muffled by his arms. Who else besides JIT Fabrication and Fulfillment has portals? No one. No one I know about. But I didn't really know about this before I saw the ad in Craigslist last year. My voice hitched, so I took a sip of my Pepsi and poked around my tender cheek with one tentative finger as I struggled to pull myself together. Huh? Deke grunted. I hadn't said anything, and was about to say that when I heard the other voice. I turned. It was still just me and Deke in the break room, but now there was a portal between us. Deke was on the business end, and I was behind it somehow, so that all I could really see was the shimmer of heat in the air and the eerie light of somewhere else on Deke's face. The voice called through the portal again, and I felt it in my chest, as though it was calling through me. It was a lady's voice, some sort of Chinese sing-song in an accent a little too lilting and curved for me to immediately follow with my rusty needs-improvement grade-school Mandarin. Deke reached up into the air and his hand disappeared into the heat shimmer, turning to searing light where his arm crossed the threshold. I had to squint. It was like staring at an eclipse. Then Deke's hand was back and he was holding a sheet of paper, reading it carefully. I heard Anne down the hall by the elevators, calling for Deke. Um, no, he said, looking right at me. But not at me, because he was actually looking at whoever was in that portal. I'm not really looking for work right now. Deke, take the offer. He leaned out so that he could see me past the edge of the portal that I couldn't really see at all. Taylor, I don't wanna. He sounded like a kid on the end of a high dive. Deke, Anne knows you pulled the alarm. Anne's steps were heavy in the hall. She called for Deke again. Anne knows you helped some dead girl from the 1930s escape into now. Deke looked bewildered. Taylor, what's Anne going to do? Fire me? Call the cops? I pulled a fire alarm. I could say it was an accident. Anne wasn't alone coming down that hall. A walkie-talkie crackled, and there was a low murmur of big guys trying to quick-walk stealthily. Anne's not going to call the cops, Deke. If Ann finds you in here, I don't think the cops are going to have any idea where to look for you. The Chinese voice said something, but Deke was still leaning out looking at me. He chewed his lip for just a second, then nodded once, stood, and stepped through the portal, slipping into the space between the thin curtains of air with a swelling flash. The Chinese woman called out to the rest of you, which was just me. She said something about fringe benefits and meditation breaks and vegan meal options, but I wasn't really following. Somewhere out under the fighting sky, that Polish concentration camper was running loose in the springtime Tennessee scrub. There'd be someone after her soon if there wasn't already, but she was hard and young and spoke like six languages, and she was highly motivated in the land of opportunity. Being properly motivated counts for an awful lot. I stood up and came around the portal's shaggy edge. The Chinese voice sang about the many fine worker opportunities at Sanfu Fabrication Industries. Viewed from the front, the portal was a brilliant pool of dappled light. I thought maybe I could see something moving in it, areas of a flatter brightness, but that might have just been my eyes tearing up. Ni hao! I called out in grammar school Mandarin. Ni hao ma! Are there opportunities for full immigration? The voice paused. 
Anne was shouting my name now, too. The big guys with her weren't bothering with stealth anymore. Yes, the Chinese lady swimming in the depths of the light finally sang back to me. Occasionally, for exemplary workers. Anywho, I know that was sort of long-winded. But all I'm really saying is this. There are good opportunities and good friends here at Sanfu Fabrication Industries, and I urge you to give it a shot. Just put your X on this waiver, step through our safe and convenient portal, and see what you see. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is David. David, thank you so much. And Jim, big thank you as well. Really appreciate it. And I just got a note from Adam just the other day as well, Adam, assistant editor, saying about David Eric Nelson. His next story is set in the same universe as the one you've just listened to there, the new guys, and it's called There Was No Sound of Thunder. It's just been accepted for Asimov's, which is great news. comes out in June 2014. So, David, round of applause there, sir. Big, big congratulations. Well done. Look out for that one, Ian Asimov's. So we're getting to the end of the show, but before I go, I got an email from Robert. Now, Robert, again, I'm going to butcher your surname. I'm sure people just send us in their name, you know, dodgy, because I cannot pronounce them. But Robert Beagler, is Robert, is that as close as I can get? Robert's mentioned this Kickstarter called Staticity, Dystopian Science Fiction, set in China in the year 2084. And if you please pop over there and have a look, you know what I mean? It's kind of, there's a big way to go on it, but it'd be nice if it gets, you know, funded. That would be fantastic. It's just lovely that Robert kind of put us a heads up in for this, this little project as well. As well. So do that. Staticity, dystopian sci-fi set in China in the year 2084. There you go. Now, if you have a listen right at the end of this show, right at the end, even past the audio outro, You'll hear a couple of little uh, clangers there. It's, <laughs> I went out last, yes, it was last night. We went to see the Boomtown Rats. Yeah, I think it was 27 years since they've played. And we went to see Sir Bob Geldof. And it was a little, little slightly, slightly worse for wear, so, as you can tell. So that is Starship Sofa. I hope you enjoyed it. And the main thing is, you know, keep in mind sofa notes. That would be fantastic. You know what I mean? Just try, I'm going to honestly try my, I'm going to try my hardest, my best to get that work and to make it amazing. I hope you can join us there. Until next week, just like to say it, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. In a portal into, into my world sort of thing, but certainly the fees were a bit troublesome on the Android. Android. <laughs> <coughs> 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 
friggin' much to drink. Bloody hell. Then we've got the main fiction, which is The New Guys Always Work Overtime by Derek Dev. David, man. D- David. <clears throat> yeah, it's going to be one of them days. <clears throat> 